Magic and Modernism, Part 2. All right, this is Jack Donovan, and you are listening to or watching Pater, uh, PH2T3R, the Journal of Solar Culture. And I'm here today with uh, C.B. Robertson, uh, Christopher Robertson again, to talk to continue our discussion on magic and modernism and what magic is and how we can use it in a in a benevolent way as we we were just talking off camera uh you know click funnels and marketing and all these things that everyone uses every day are kind of a, a form of magic um you know they're, they're persuasive magic um and they get people to have reactions that they aren't expecting to have uh you know and so there are all these different levels of of this uh but uh we were also having a discussion recently that i wanted to get into about uh, the way words create magic and um because words once you name a thing and i talked about this a little bit in fire in the dark you know when you name it when you give a thing a name you know that 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 name takes on a meaning of its own because the thing there's no thing that needs a name to exist in the world. Uh, a rock does not need a name for it to exist in the world. It simply is. Uh, but when we, we need, need it to have a name so we can talk about it. So we, we create a name. We really create a myth about that. Okay. A story about that rock, you know, that by, by saying it's a rock, well, that's a rock and it's part of the group of rocks and it becomes an taxonomy of different kinds of rocks and it's so that we can be specific about things. Uh, but that, you know, that takes on its own meaning. And it got me thinking about the subject of runes. And a little bit of magic that I think happened in the 20th century that I don't think a lot of people know about. Because, you know, one of the things, because I was obviously in into Germanic paganism for, for a good, good long while. And I've done a lot of, I've conducted a lot of rituals and maybe sacrificed some goats. And and so, you know, I, I was obviously very interested in it and did a lot of research over the years. Uh, you know, I, I, I had to give these speeches retelling these myths like in front of people uh, from memory. And so I, I did a little research and we we re, a lot of people, when they get interested in this, they get interested in the runes. And, you know, of course, they, you know, the first thing that they do is they get interested in the elder Futhark uh, and the younger Futhark. They all want to be Vikings. But they, with the Vikings, used the younger Futhark, and the younger Futhark is actually really hard to understand because it's missing sounds. Uh, so the sounds are inferred or whatever. I never really learned to read that really well. I learned to recite the alphabet at some point. I've lost that since, but uh, it's a little bit harder to use. And of course, if you were speaking that, you would have been speaking well Old Norse, uh, you know. And, but a lot of people use the elder Futhark. And they they attribute magical properties and ideas to the runes, um, which are just letters. And they were letters that are used by an early culture that we don't really know anything about whatsoever. I mean, uh, it, it, there you would have been if you were using the Elder Futhark, you would have been speaking some version of Proto-Germanic or Proto-Norse. Or some, and those are theoretical languages because it was never really written down. So the accuracy on that is really, you know, it's very skeptical as to what, how those people would have spoken it or at any given time. These, it's just a theoretical language that's a step between, you know, Proto-Norse and then Norse and the things that came before it. 
Uh, so, and then you obviously going back to Proto-Indo-European, which is another theoretical language. So you have these runes that we, the Elder Futhark is you found examples of these runes on like inscribed on things. And that's why we know that they exist at all. Uh, because then they became the younger Futhark and English, you know, like some other characters or whatnot, English because they're Roman, but um, they became, they evolved into the younger Futhark. But the, the elder Futhark is, you know, they've been scratched onto things and that, that survived because they probably wrote these on wood a lot and things that uh, deteriorated. But, uh, you know, they're little you know, brooches and things that have them scratched into them. And so we know that these letters exist. And my understanding is that the letters actually come from the names for the letters that we use for the elder Futhark actually come from Gothic. And that you know, so we get the we tend to like put the goth change Gothic into Proto-Germanic, and that you know you get Kanaz, you know, and that you, you get you get the Oz the things, and you know you just kind of make the sounds different. And uh, you know, I'm I'm simplifying that. Obviously, a Germanic linguist uh, would be able to be spe specific about that, but that's my understanding from looking at this for a long time. And so, there's a lot of lore associated with this. Elder Futhark. And, you know, people want to know, they want to like, tell me about the runes. I want to learn about the runes and what they mean and the magic and all that stuff. And that is a bit of magic because we don't know. Like, we don't know any of that. Basically, the deep, dark, dirty secret that I can tell you about the runes is that everything you will ever need to know about the runes you can find on Wikipedia. Uh, if you go to the if you go to the page on Elder Futhark on Wikipedia, it will list the runes and their names and their their association with the younger Futhark and what they think the word means. A few different you know they think the letter stands for or how it's said, and then they're attached to the rune poems. Wait, you're not telling me that <laughs> bone casting fortune telling with rune bones was invented in the last hundred years? Are you? <laughs> I feel like it probably was. Uh, <laughs> and and that's that's a thing that like is it's good so much lore and so many books and so many things and you can go to Barnes and Noble and buy a little rune casting kit of rune things made out of plastic and all these things have been, it, it come out of this and all we have for these meanings these advanced meanings are these rune poems which really read almost like like, like A is in, for apple. Yes, A is, is for, for apple, boy. B is for boy. You know, like a little bit more advanced than that. There's a little bit more about the apple than uh, whatever, yeah. like hail and, and, and things like that, elements. Um, but, you know, so people have built a lot more meaning into these little poems. And you can do that. And the... The people who did that, I mean, one of them being Stephen Flowers, who I've met, and he's really smart, really smart guy. I mean, he he could tell you exactly where the runes came from because he studied it in Germany. Uh, you know, he he really knows his stuff. Um, but you know, like he he was trying to bring back a an ancient religion, and so he had to fill in some gaps, yeah. and so he had to connect some dots and whatever. And the way this, the point I want to make about magic here, mm -hmm. is that in filling in those gaps. 
he created a huge, profound level of meaning and so much meditation that would, people would do on this thing that they don't really wasn't probably isn't attached to the people that they think it is. And probably it has no we don't really know anything aside from these poems. I mean, and I've done it. I, I've done it. I can tell you uh, Rido and Rido always has to do with riding something and it, you're riding horses. And yeah, like it, it's always harder to you know ride a horse than it is to stay at home. And Rido to me is associated with masculinity uh, because riding is one of the hard, hardest things that men do. And whenever you're doing something because you're, you're kind of handling something wild. And that's, yeah. that's like the best, that's when a lot of masculinity involves whether it's a woman or a horse or whatever, you're handling something wild and chaotic and just kind of trusting yourself to run it. And, and that's deep in the meaning of masculinity for me, but all that came from me. <laughs> that, that all came from me meditating on it. I can yeah. tell, I can tell you all kinds of nerd shit that I've come up with, with, with the runes and what they mean. Cause I spent years with it. Right. Well, and and we yeah. would chant these runes with other other people. And mm. it had so much meaning for them because they'd had so much time. And and my point is not that that's wrong or that it's bad, because who's just why not? No, if, if you put, view it as history, yeah. you will probably be disappointed. But yes. if you view it as magic, you can appreciate, oh, Einar Selvik is doing this well. Oh, yeah. J.K. Rowling opens the seventh book with an appeal to Ascalus. That's this appeal to the old stuff. J.R. Tolkien is using runes in mysterious languages and magic rings and doorways. You know, the mines to Moria were open with a door sealed with runes. Where does that come from? I don't know. You know <laughs> but the but the appeal backwards brings in that like ancient mysterious legitimacy, which was I think one of the things we were talking about last time. It's like creating legitimacy through the appeal to something old. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing about starting something new is because you don't have like, th there's an allure to like, this is ancient. Like this is an ancient Chinese secret. Like this is, mm. this is ancient and it's been around forever. And a lot of these ideas that we're talking about have been around for forever. But when you attach them to do things, it's, it's easier to sell to people if you say, this is ancient secret knowledge and I'm going to let you in on it. And no one else can know. Yeah. But uh, you know, if, if it becomes, uh, you know, esoteric and, and occult, then it becomes like something like secret. But if you just say, Hey, here's an idea and we're going to attach it to this uh, because it has this function. It's a little bit less magical for people because they yeah. want to believe, they want to believe that there's magic and that it comes from yeah. some ancient place. You know, it's like, I mean, the, the Pythagoreans did this with numbers you know, you don't need runes or, or letters. You can also do it with numbers. There's like now, now there's like, you know, sacred geometry and all this other stuff that functions in the same way. Um, and it's, I mean, numbers are very old. So there's kind of an appeal to this is always how things are. There's, there's a feeling that the laws of mathematics are immutable and transcendent in some way. So there's a kind of feeling of power in that too. Um, of course, what they're doing with it is totally you know, when it's not Barnum statements, it's, you know, uh, imaginative and it's a creative act. But uh, aside from the you know bad mathematics, and you can look at the statistics of like how the Bible code, which is one of the more famous ones, can literally do anything. You know, uh, you can make it say whatever you want the, the way they do the, the, the 
line code stuff, but it, it as a persuasive device as something to both look out for and maybe pair with strong arguments. Um, because the, the, the temptation of course is to always like, well, once I master these skills, I can just persuade everyone of anything. It's, no, it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> um, there's the old Aristotle thing about you need, you need, uh, pathos ethos, but also logos. You, you need the, the good argument as well as the persuasive implements, but, but yeah, that, that appeal to, to ancient, that, that throwback to olden times gives everything a, a feeling of uh credibility and uh if not you know transcendence of of, of the, this is always true didn't we i feel like it was you one time we were having a discussion and like or maybe it was somebody else but i think uh you know doesn't myth always come from the past like isn't it always an old story that's repeated then brought forward like you don't you know, like it, it, that's that seems to be the case you know it's always something that already happened it depends on how you define myth. Um, right. There is a school of like the political right always seems to go that way. They're, they've got right. the, the the golden age myth that they're always trying to throw back. I feel like the I've made this argument also the um, the left wing the political left parallel is the myth of utopia, mm-hmm. the myth of a future to come, and in fact, um, if you look at someone like Georg Hegel, who we mentioned last time. The, the, the idea of a trajectory of history that is leading inexorably and inevitably to this, this singularity of the universe becoming conscious of itself as its own creator. And that will be the end of history. And so we're like that, that that's a myth insofar as it is a sacred story about the future. So most myths are usually about the past um, and that is where they draw a lot of their credibility. But every once in a while, you'll get an interesting one about the future. Um, do you know the 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 myth, uh, the first mention of Utopia by any chance? No, I know this is a, that book by Thomas More. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. And it was a, it was a satire. It yeah. was it was making fun of because it's a it's a play on words because a utopia, which would be e u t o p i, would be um, the like the best place, the, the, the perfect place, but utopia just do with the U is, um, in Greek means no place. It's nowhere. Um, and it was, it was, it was a, a very club. It was a Greek pun written by an English writer in the, uh, oh, the 16th century or something, basically making fun of that mindset. But then it got picked up unironically by, uh, Hegelians and others. That that's fantastic. I love it. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I, uh, something else that jumped out of me that I was uh, thinking about in terms of myth and, and creating myth. This really obscure, random shit that I found years ago that always kind of fascinated me um, uh, by uh, Georges Bataille, the the French artist, um, had had this whole secret society, and you can look at it. it it's a uh, the Asafal Society, um, and it was this kind of art movement that he created. And it, it probably has, now that I'm older and know more, uh, probably has some Marxist roots from the way it it, it sounds. Uh, but uh, it didn't strike me that way because I wasn't looking for it at that point. Uh, but the idea that they needed a myth to really 
gather around. And so someone was going to have to have their head cut off because they needed a headless king. They need be like because they they needed a ruler that had lost his head. That there was so there was no head of state. There was just a headless man would be the central myth of their entire uh, religion, basically. And and of course they could never get anyone to cut their head off. But, but uh, there are all these drawings of a headless man and like whatever. And, and I'm I'm sure it was much more advanced than that because I, I read a lot about it years ago, but fascinating idea always kind of struck me as like i love weird art movements anyway yeah. and like this this idea that like okay okay guys <laughs> we just need someone to cut off their head so that we can begin the myth because it'll be such a dramatic act and you know they're french too so they're thinking in that way because you know obviously the guillotine and revolution has to do with the end of the monarch and and all that kind of but they still have a king this is the funny thing yeah. That almost sounds more English than Marxist <laughs> in a way. <laughs> but yeah, if anyone wants to look at it, Georges Bataille is a weird, weird figure. Um, he's also the only the one that I know about the death of a thousand cuts for because he wrote a lot about that one picture of the guy in China, or I think it was China, uh, actually getting the death of a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this long thing about the relationship between the person doing the cutting and the per- and the the person being cut. Uh, it's just neat weird shit but off yeah. our off our tangent but uh, it's just an interesting thing about the idea of creating a myth through act and, and actually that relates uh to you know the, what we we're discussing about mishima yes because i connected the dots i mean i was kind of reading about those things at the same time in my life and so i connected the dots between him and that's kind of i called him headless god i had a whole website at one point uh <laughs> called headless god for mishima because that was Really what I mean, he beheaded himself because he was trying to really start something. I should read some of his other works. The only work I've read of his was uh, in the fiction realm was a very, very short book called Patriotism. Yeah. Which is literally just a description of a Japanese commander who comes home, makes love with his wife, and then they both commit seppuku in the ritually correct fashion and it is anatomically precise in its in its depiction of everything and that it, it i mean i hope i'm not sounding like a like a you know record that's skipping a beat and i keep going back to homer because mishima was also a, a hellenophile as well but sure. you see that with with homer too in these very brutal descriptions of death in battle and it it seems like in lieu of an actual act like maybe you're a buddhist monk who decides to douse yourself with gasoline in the streets of saigon or you know something a sufficiently vivid description seems to be quite powerful in its own way um and i think uh, i we were my wife and i were, were brainstorming the sort of taxonomy of different kinds of art and or i'm sorry Freudian slip there, different kinds of magic. And art seems to be one that comes up a lot. Uh, Alan Moore, the the author of of Watchmen and and other stuff, said there is no distinction between magic and art. Art is, or at least when it's done correctly, is magic. Magic is art. Mm -hmm. I think there are other kinds. I think there's a way you can view contracts as art. I liked your, your your point before about naming is is very powerful in ancient kind of magic. Um, we're in, in talking about Marxism. Uh, 
I wanted to remember this point. I think my favorite instance of magic by naming is capitalism. The word capital is fairly old. It goes back to like, I don't know, the 16th, 17th century, something like that as a, a thing that is a means of production. But capitalism, the word uh, is newer. That was in the 19th century, the 1830s or 40s. It was, it was coined by a French socialist. Um, and it's giving, when you think about it, what capitalism is, as we describe it in like the, I don't know, people read the Chicago school or whatever, but it's an economic system that is not a system. And so to give it a name it is almost a category error when you're describing economic systems. It's just, it's just less regulated markets. There are markets that are more regulated and there are different ways you can regulate them in a systematic top-down fashion. And that would make sense to call, give those names. But why would you give a name to a non-system where, where the mechanisms and the transactions and the way it operates are going to vary based on geography and culture and what's being produced in these places? The, the, the description of a given economy with less regulation is going to be uh, you know, described not by the absence of regulation, but by its other characteristics. And yet they invented this term to give a positive identity to what is actually a negative state, an absence of regulation. And now they're saying that the capitalist system, it's a total fabrication, a very clever magic. Yeah, that is, that is fascinating. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's cause I never, it's, it, I always kind of chafed against that, that word anyway, because I mean, without knowing that just because uh, like trade is kind of old <laughs> trade is old people owning more things than other things is kind of other people is kind yeah. of old finding uh, amulets from egypt in you know uh norway from the you know 7th century bc or whatever like that's <laughs> we've been trading for probably longer than we've been homo sapiens yeah um, yeah 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 Banana, bananas yeah like <laughs> it's uh uh you know uh wives <laughs> if, if the if the if the ape studies in zoos are to be believed, uh, people have been selling other people and themselves for uh, in, in elsewhere in the primate world. So yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, to to put it the way they put it into like a modern context is very very awkward to me. You know, like as it's saying, you know, uh, they were doing the same shit in ancient Rome, and like all well, it's, it's that's the way humans have operated. You know. Uh, in, a, in a non-regulated system, really, for a really long time. But uh, anyway, I, you also came up with, uh, well, because we should get to that, uh, you're, uh, you said uh, you and your wife were actually talking and got a kind of taxonomy of magic. Well, right. The, the, the first ones to mention are, like, to get out of the way are um, stage magic. So, like, you know, when you see David Blaine doing his street magic or, or Chris Angel in Vegas or you know, Penn and Teller, um, these kinds of guys like that's, that's, that's performative stage magic designed to create, and we might call it illusions, um, to create on wonder through the appearance of the impossible. And that's cool. Um, and then there's, so that, that would be like category one stage magic and category two is fantasy magic, which is ironically what a lot of people call real magic, but it's, it's 
actually not. It's uh, like I cast a fireball. Uh, I, uh, you, you know, the, the stuff you see in Harry Potter with wands that they make feathers levitate and doors unlock and so forth. Um, that's sort of the, the lay person's understanding of what magic is. Uh, there's this famous Arthur C. Clarke quote for the science fiction world. Any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But I think you could take technology out of it. And it's like any sufficiently advanced technique is going to appear, uh, you know, uh, like magic to people. It's as an electrician, it's very funny walking around the job site and we're doing very basic stuff. We're basically running copper wire from point A to point B and then to point C. And then we like, we just connect copper. That's, that's all we're doing. Yeah. Many of the other trades literally think this is magic. Like, the, the way electricity works and uh, like any point can shock you. And it's this like very terrifying to a lot of people. Um, but it's, yeah, I don't fuck with it. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and electricity is kind of uh, like, it's a little bit crazy when you think about the, the amount of power that can flow through this conduit and, you know, c contained within metal pipes that themselves don't shock you. But um, like when you work with it every day, it feels like like not substantially different than bricklaying or drywalling but to other people who are less familiar with it it appears like you you do things and now lights work if you don't do those things the lights don't come on we we don't know anything else um yeah. and so and so when people who don't understand the way that someone like evola or someone like jr tolkien uses magic describes magic they're going to be envisioning waving a wand and stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. By magic. Um, so there's stage magic, which everyone kind of understands is an illusion. And then there's fantasy magic, which is the impression of what magic is. But then there's like actual real magic. And the, there are probably infinite, you know, subcategories of this, at least potentially. But the ones that we came up with were, uh, as you started with naming uh, contracts, uh, art, and then uh, you know art with an asterisk there, because um, not all art is magic, but you know some of it is. Uh, and then there's storytelling, and storytelling probably has a number of subcategories of its own as well, because you can story you can tell a story with a particular point of emphasis. You can tell a story of the future. I mean, who, who, you know, who can count all the, the science fiction stories that were written that inspired and influenced inventors to create like the cell phone or, you know, something like that. Oh yeah. Um, but there's also like prophesizing in an attempt to either stave off some future event or to bring it about another kind of storytelling. And then there's storytelling of the, like, you know, the, the Homeric, uh, or J.R. Tolkien kind that is attempting to create something through the use of words, like a concept, like, you know, or, or transform justice or transform heroism or to, uh, you know, transform England or protect England as J.R. Tolkien's hope, I think was, um, you know, there's all kinds of things you can try to accomplish with storytelling in the way that you emphasize and in the words you use. Um, but those are, I think those, you could spend a lifetime studying just one of those four things, let alone right. all the other, you know, possible subcategories of magic. 
um, that people use. Maybe, maybe philosophy would be a fifth one <laughs> if you're if you're Hegel or Evola. Right. Well, any kind of yeah writing that I mean, um, we were talking earlier about persuasion. Mm-hmm. Like persuasion can be magic, magical. Basically, you know that becomes a cult. Like you, oh, uh, interrogation. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> interrogation. I mean, that is a that is a that's, that's black magic right there. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like uh, like a litigator or like uh, oh god, yeah. Like I remember, I told I think I've told you before. I, I know this uh, uh, federal prosecutor, and we did a podcast together. And he's like, he, he's like, oh, don't worry about what to say. I'll lead you to to say what I want you to say. I do this for a living, and I was like, that I, I don't like you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's scary, uh, you know. Like, but yeah. I, he, he's not wrong. Like he he that he has a skill of doing that, and uh, that that was you know that's very that's very unsettling to realize. But at the same time, when you talk to a policeman. That's he's first maybe, of all maybe don't. being a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. First of all, don't. <laughs> but it, it, you know, he's he's leading you to he's helping you to confess. <laughs> you know, it's just his he, job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is his job, and uh, he's helping you to confess and, and to provide evidence that it's on yourself to make everybody's life easier in court. Uh, and uh, you know, and the same thing, we're trying to maybe get you not to confess. Uh, you know, if, if he uh, if he's a good guy, shut up. Uh, yeah. But uh, uh, can I can I interject with a funny story? Scott sure. Adams was was telling a story a couple years ago about a tragic incident, tragic here in quotes, in Texas, where there was a man who tried to um, hold up a store, and there was a gunfight, and it in the end the the instigator the the guy who tried to rob accidentally shot himself in the head. And Scott Adams like, now, the way the news covered this is funny, but all you need to know is that the story happened in Texas. Does anyone need an explanation? Does anyone need to know the cop, you know, talking to the people there is like, are you sure that bullet came from your gun? I mean, it could have come from his gun. You know, it, uh, it would make my paperwork a lot easier. If right. you think maybe the bullet didn't come from your gun, but might have come from his gun, it's a possibility. And the guy's like, you know what? I think that might be how I remember it happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not not the usual case. Don't depend on that, but it does happen sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like this, yeah. Like there are still guys who are like, let's let's make this right in the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and God bless him. But uh, it's—I uh, mean, that—that's the—that's that, the good guys, really, in a way. But uh, um, mm-hmm. yeah, but, but yeah, like, any kind of interrogation and persuasion, um, obviously propaganda, which you kind of touched on. That's part of story t- storytelling as well. I mean, obviously, yeah. when we talk about spin in the media. That's all magic. We're going to say a thing that's not exact, that is technically true, but it's not technically true in the way we want you to think it is, you know? Yeah. I mean, a lot of propaganda in its most like sort of primitive and obvious form is like a combination of art and naming, right? You have a poster that depicts the bad guy as ugly and gives him an ugly name. Yes. The German is the Hun, you know? Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden is X. Donald Trump is Y. You know, it's it's just it, it's very um, 
sort of primitive because it's not it's not a surgical device really it, it, they're just trying to to move things in a statistical manner and if they just you know if 100 people see their poster and it moves three of them that's a success kind of deal which has now been a domain of ai because they've been uh mm-hmm. and i mean that was half of what you see on ai like just you had you know the basic basic npc uh mid-journey users were like creating tons and tons of like fantasy things about donald trump in like you know jail outfits and oh, some yeah. of them have now finally gotten to the mainstream but i was seeing them like back when we first started using mid-journey like oh yeah they were just doing that because that's they live they have they have tds and they can't like not do that here's but, the uh, yeah Here's a scary possibility. That this is another. I'm borrowing this from Scott Adams. What mm-hmm. happens when AI modifications get so good that they can take politicians, an existing, uh, an existing video of a politician, and edit the video just like five percent to push that politician slightly into the uncanny valley, such that you won't even consciously notice the difference, but it just makes them look untrustworthy, look unlikable look wrong somehow that will that would be extremely powerful we're really M- much more powerful than the than the sort of overt stuff and you know who many knows how many things like that are already out there for other things i mean that's what what hatchet jobs with quotes are <laughs> already just in a in a text form the visual persuasion is like supposedly a lot stronger um but yeah. uh yeah, I mean, and and the value in learning all this because again, it, it can feel like a like a dark place to go. Um, is that how are you going to defend yourself against this stuff if you don't know what it is? There's a there's a Aristotle wrote a a book called Rhetoric from twenty three hundred years ago where he, he he has this opening line where he says, you know, it, again, it is absurd to think that a man should be ashamed of being unable to defend himself with his limbs, but not feel the same way, unable to defend himself with words and unable to, to hold his own in that domain when words are more unique to man than the use of limbs. And I think it's a, a, it goes back to, I think, I think this is from the way of men the idea that the great men of history are, are, are not men of just action or just words, but both. Action um, and abstraction. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's a, yeah, there's definitely, you know, need for both. Uh, it, it's, it's important to be able to defend yourself and to be able to express yourself uh, accurately. And we're all going to have different aptitudes in that, just like we have different aptitudes in the ability to like hit people. Of course, uh, you yeah. know, like uh, we're going to have I mean, I always say that I don't debate because I'm not a master debater like uh, <laughs> I, 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 mean, I wouldn't be good at it. Like I, my brain does not work that fast. Like I've said some really smart things in my life, but I maybe took a day to write them, <laughs> you know, like uh, in 10 seconds while someone's like on me, I would just be like deer in headlights. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, because it's a skill like debating is a skill. That's why I say like these. uh these people like Jordan Peterson or, or whatever can do that because if you've st- stood in front of a classroom for 30 years oh God, and yeah. taken questions and defended them, um, you can do that without like breaking a sweat and not even think about it because that's what yeah. you do. 
<laughs> you know, uh, but that's yeah. something you, that takes years and years. Of, it's an art, you know, like and it's it, it becomes easy after a while, but it's not easy to start with. Yeah. You, you, once you and this is the other power of um, na- giving names to things. Um, there's a whole school of we might call it magic called neuro linguistic programming. Yes. That's about performing magic. You have a guy on, in the order who's going to school for that right now. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all about performing magic on yourself. I mean, yeah. like people talk about affirmations in this way. But uh, I mean, in philosophy, uh, I don't know if this is, would be called thought best thought of as magic in like a dark sense, but like we give names to things in order to order them. And if you give names to them, it's like uh, it's like creating an index in your head. If you yeah. if you give names to patterns like in, in philosophy with like logical fallacies. If someone says something, a, a, a normal person who isn't trained might be like, that doesn't sound right, but I can't really explain why. Whereas if you've done training, you're like, oh, this is a Mott and Bailey and you threw on a red herring at the end. That's not pertinent to what we were talking about before. And you've also changed definitions. And if you can pull out words like equivocation and non sequitur and, and so forth, and it gives you speed. It gives you that uh, capability to engage. Uh, and it takes a lot of time to to learn all those and to learn to employ them in the moment. But um, it's just like jujitsu or martial yeah. arts or, or or anything else. You get more proficient and faster the more you do that, the more you, you, you know, work that muscle memory or mental circuits, you know, so that the, the, the pathways are a little bit quicker. And, yeah. uh, and that's one of the uses of naming um that's just wholesome and and just just plain useful in in your own life yeah i mean just taxonomy generally i mean that's what becomes and then uh you know it it, it can also be used for obfuscation yes uh, <laughs> like i mean for most people the word obfuscation is obfuscation uh, cuz yeah. they don't know what i'm saying uh but <laughs> like high vocabulary is is, uh, yeah. is obfuscation but uh, you could use i mean who knows maybe you use it wrong i have to look it up okay, uh, you really shouldn't say obfuscation you should say occluding but so yeah i mean uh, uh, technical jargon mm. which which is what that get in, gets into uh, yes. And philosophical jargon is a jargon, uh, you know, where it becomes like that's an uh, that's then an occult, oh, an esoteric order uh, that you could s- speak plainly about a thing, but if you start talking in jargon, you're automatically not talking to people anymore. You're talking in jargon, and, 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 and so it can come across as philosophers, you know, like uh, yeah, yeah, or you're talking to normal people and just trying to confound them. Yeah, um, well, I was I've always said them. I, I don't. I learned in the internet in my early days in the internet that you never argue with a scientist um, <laughs> because, you know, they all have special fields of interest. And if you if you go into someone's special field of interest, they will make you look like an idiot, even if they're wrong. Yeah. Because they can just talk in jargon and you can't because you can't decode their speech and you don't know exactly what they're saying, they may still, th- I mean, that's what really would happen in all of like 2020. We had all these people using jargon at us um, and clearly they know the jargon, so they must know what's going on. No, they were all lying. <laughs> you know? yeah. So like, uh, you know, but they use the jargon to fool people. This is one of the things about, um, not to get too on a tangent about that, but my wife and I spent some time talking about the, the phrase social distancing. Yeah. Why, why use that instead of personal space? Yeah. Social distancing 
sounds like something more objective, something like that was decided. And I, if I remember correctly, someone will have to check me on this because I'm not 100% on this, but the rumor was the origin of the six feet as the the as the the optimal or at least the minimum distance for social distancing came from a high school student science fair project that's that's the rumor um i'm like 80 percent sure on that i wouldn't i wouldn't say 100 percent sure but like they they really were pulling stuff just straight out of their oh yeah their but look how magic that was <laughs> Oh yeah, social now, distancing now as a phrase. Force yeah. field around you that protects you. That's six feet uh, in, in diameter, <laughs> like all yeah. around. You have a force yeah, you're, field you're, there. As long as you have the six Cartman feet. stick. Yeah. yeah, it's like magic. <laughs> like now it went away, and like all the magic they were doing, like the theater magic that they were doing when you go into a restaurant, and here's where it works, and here where it doesn't work, and like here's what the rule mm-hmm. is. All magic. Yeah. Uh, and people, the thing is, I mean, most of, uh, most of us were all grind, groaning about it and being like, this is so stupid and obviously foolish. But there are a lot of people that that worked on and that it was actually magic to the point where, like, if you broke their space, they thought they were going to die. Yeah. You know, you know it, and you can't credit all of that to the language. The language definitely put the, some 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 extra spice on the, the main right. mechanism. But the main mechanism was a combination of n- not fear exactly, but disgust. There is a, a psychologist of disgust named David Pizarro who did a bunch of studies on this. And he said, disgust is a very interesting emotion because it's one of the few that transfers. If something that disgusts you touches something else, you become disgusted by the second order thing as well, which is, does not apply with fear and doesn't apply with anger and these other things in, in the same way. And so what that means is that disgust is very easy to uh, make into a metaphor. You can, you can transfer. Especially one for disgust. disease. Yeah. Especially from a disease and, and, and also by names, the, the famous, you know, conversation about this is like Hitler comparing the Jews to rats. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. we might say something about maggots uh, in the last few years, but you know, the, the, that kind of language of invoking disgust Oh. Uh, is itself very powerful um, persuasion, or we might say sorcery or magic, in invoking that disgust fear response. Oh. And that's at work in a lot of people. And it works on everybody. It doesn't work on everyone in every instance, but it's it's a deep part of all of our brains. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's it, there's all kinds of di- yeah, different versions of that. I mean, I can think of that you're, you know, be, you know it goes into, you know, caste system like mm-hmm. being unclean and like yeah. like because you touched a person that's unclean or like obviously uh you know from the masculinity perspective um this kind of contact gay uh like <laughs> like, <laughs> like dudes don't want to be around extremely effeminate dudes because it makes them nervous because then you know it's like yeah they're going to be absorbed into the into the extremely effeminate group you and know, i'm not like, going to say i'm not going to say this is like good magic because it's the same thing just working in reverse but i think we've seen something like that going on with blood light you can now become contact gay if you yes. drink blood light yes um, which because is it's become hilarious. taboo it's, it's <laughs> quite funny yeah, yeah 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 no absolutely absolutely everything uh, target became t- contact gay uh for a little bit not not exactly but blood light for sure was uh, they, mm-hmm. they, they're gonna fight that for a long time because that was that worked yeah 
Uh, like uh, that was something conservatives actually pulled off. Like, yeah, okay, if you drink Bud Light, you're dead. Yeah, and and, and, and so- actually. I mean, to, not to go on this tangent because it's something that has irritated me for 10 to 15 years. Uh, but uh, uh, they use that with me. Uh, that's the, that's a big strategy that the left and sometimes now the Catholics um, uh, use. Uh, if you if you agree with anything that Jack Donovan said, then you're gay because you get contact gay. So like that, like that only wrote it. Therefore, then it's only it, it's okay to agree with you, just not to mention your name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. But if you mention his name, they're like, oh, yeah, like, uh, and they, I really feel like that that was a coordinated effort from, uh, you know, whether it was the SPSC or whatever, uh, when they used that in 2017 or whatever, to then the media kind of got that as a subject. Like everyone wanted to talk to me all of a sudden. And then they put out a whole thing. And it, the focus of the articles was always like, gay, 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 gay. And then use that to wedge, break the right. Yeah, because uh, Jack Donovan is the wedge figure. Uh, I really think that that was that. I don't think I think that that was magic. I don't think that that was uh, a coincidence. Oh yeah, well, and and they we we know that they do that stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not even hard to do. I, I was um, somewhat silly back in those days, twenty seventeen. Got involved in stuff I had. No <laughs> Were <business>. we all? <laughs> <laughs> no business. I, but I remember. I remember getting in in uh, in circumstances where i was standing face to face with antifa types and and getting into arguments and conversations with them and what me and a few friends learned is that you could you would sort of play them off each other because some of them are just there to yell at you but a lot of the antifa types are uh quite well read marxists mm-hmm. and like believe themselves to be intellectuals and some of them are cool. quite yeah yeah many of them are um and so What's funny is you can actually, depending on how you talk, if you're polite and if you point out and if you you give kind of carrots and sticks in a conversational sense, you can make the intellectual types feel embarrassed by their buddies who are just yelling slogans two feet next to them. And like, I'm a, I, I was a pest control tech doing this. Like, you think the CIA can't do stuff like that? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. The 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 my, my maybe the, the the crowning jewel of magical phrases like that has to be conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and yeah. that was the, like we have the receipts now. Like that that was pushed out intentionally in order to discredit. I think the the second shooter theory with JFK, which yes. we know a lot more about now in the last year. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, like and that that phrase works wonders. It, it's extraordinary in its ability to completely dismiss things and and my favorite are are ones where things that are neither conspiratorial because it's like in the up out in the open nor a theory because it's directly out in the open in our face get called a conspiracy theory i think they were trying to do that with the world economic forum yeah, a few yeah. years they're back. Tell you what they're doing on TV. They, 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 <laughs> I think they gave up on that phrase, but they, yeah. they uh, or may, most of them did. I think there's no, a few who that, say it's for conspiracy theory. Every damn thing is like that's yeah. that's what they use to dismiss things, and it works yeah. for most people because no one wants to be a kook. No one wants to be yeah. Uh, uh, get that that disgust, contagion, contact, uh, disrepute rubbed yeah, off. Yeah, like I mean, I, I did it with flat Earth. 
Like, get the fuck out of my face if you're on flat earth because I don't want to be, I don't want to get contact retard. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, I don't want, that, you know, I have enough, I have enough problems. <laughs> I, I got 99 problems, yeah. but fucking flat earth ain't one. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think for most people, that is like, it, it, it's re- not just reasonable, but it's kind of the only functional way to, to live. You, you have to separate yourself out because those people, first of all, some of them are like just well-meaning idiots and they will get you in trouble just by naivete, but some of them are not, you know, some of them are not, some of them glow a little bit. Um, and that's also, you know, sorcery. Well, yeah. I mean, I can think of a few people, uh, from my past, uh, that would, you know, there are people who want to close down all your other options Mm-hmm. say the words say the words with us you close down all your other the, options the, and then the, we can use you for our own purposes 13 words or 15 words i don't remember which <laughs> <laughs> something like that yeah. uh even if it's not those words but there are words that you can't take back there are more of them now uh but uh there there's you know, words that uh you know if you, if you if you if you line yourself with some certain people then like all of a sudden all the other doors close and uh you know, a lot of people don't do that, realize that, and they, they get spicy and think they're being they think they're being clever. Uh, yeah. But you know, if you you're going to get burned by that, I, I know that fire is hot. Uh, but uh, yeah. A- anyway, I mean, I guess we should probably steer this before we get into our own uh, tangents of all the things <laughs> yeah. that we know about the world because we're well, experienced. <laughs> the, the the challenging thing then is like how to deal with it, and and this is one of the um, there's like there's a whole tangent that you know could be gone down about you know hunting witches right from from heinrich kramer and malleus maleficarum up to like you know vox, vox day yeah Van <laughs> or like vox, vox day and james Lindsay mm-hmm. have been doing good work in in the modern age you might call them the, the heinrich kramers of the 21st century um maybe with a better reputation but um th- they're one of the things that james Lindsay has been doing is introducing different levels of fighting back against this mm-hmm. like some people can go into you know uh like crt training and overplay the part and cause havoc and ruin the whole experience in a funny way uh most people don't have that skill set like if you put if you put for example um who's that guy alex stein i want to say um who's been on tim pool or one of these other uh comedian types um you know milo before everyone knew his name or uh you know one of these other um jokesters with a quick wit they can do a lot of damage uh in a in a fun way um that normal people can't do so it's like so normal people you can just say i'm just not going to participate in this in stonewall other people can become like um james o'keefe and and go underground and and do stuff. But um, what always interested me were the people like Jordan Peterson or um, who can, who can actually use arguments to, to challenge, to identify the, the insinuations and implications, which is always very much more, much easier said than done. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you know the patterns and my favorite example of this was actually um, Curtis Yarvin is a, is a, like a right-wing philosopher and every once in a while he gets um accused of being 
you know, a fascist or a, or a neo-Nazi or an anti-Semite, which is like, it's always funny when people accuse Jewish people of being anti-Semites, but, right. um, uh, but like he, he was accused of this by Brett Weinstein of all people, uh, because he was, uh, too friendly with white nationalists. Right. Right. And he, he said, well, I'm not a white nationalist. He's like, yeah, but you're, you're like too friendly with them. And he says, well, I, I don't think you can be really be a philosopher. I don't think you can really explore ideas unless you're willing to, to really, um, go down these rabbit holes to, as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, just not be deterred by the name of evil, but to explore whether it be evil. And he gave this, this funny story of Voltaire in France being asked by a friend, um, you know, Hey, there's a, there's a, um, you know, a bordello or a, a, a brothel down the road. Do you want to go? And uh, Voltaire was like, a brothel. His friend was like, yeah, with uh, with boys. And Voltaire was like, huh. Okay. And so they go. Right. And they, they spend the evening there. And they come back. And uh, and his friend was like, so what did you think? And Voltaire was like, oh, that was interesting. Uh-huh. And he's like, do you want to go again to tomorrow night? And Voltaire was like, oh, no. Once a philosopher, twice a sodomite. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was it was it was the perfect amount of of crassness and humor, uh, but also it, it illustrated the point about like th- this kind of, of of the nature of this kind of associative censorship that is very difficult for most people to articulate. And now that I've told that story, like it would be, you know. Uh, yeah, maybe it could be recycled once or twice, but that, that will eventually get stale and you can't reuse that. But, you know, to be able to, to counter uh, challenges of association like that, like you can't talk to these people or you're bad. And those could be white nationalists, or it could be your grandpa who likes Trump, you right. know, um, the, like the, the, this, this is the nature of magic is like the limits. If you un if you're not prepared to deal with it are pretty mind boggling and terrifying. So I, I think there's, there is value in learning at least the basics of identifying and, and maybe countering and, and ultimately maybe even creating something good from studying this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, uh, but to, to take it in a different direction, because um, I mean, obviously that's that's true, uh, but to take it in a different direction, you know, that's one of my biggest complaints about society is that uh, where we're at, especially if you're not on the left, but really everybody, um, you know, is that we do more complaining than we do uh, creating. <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, so uh, maybe we can move uh, a little bit just for the last few minutes of this uh, from from identifying bad magic to creating good magic. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's the challenge, I think. And and I'm not going to, you know, obviously there's civilizational level stuff that's uh, a little bit. Well, let's see, beyond my pay grade. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff that's going on is a little bit beyond my pay grade. Uh, whatever I say probably won't affect what the WEF is going to do. Um, I, I feel like I've had some impact in, in the world in, in, in interesting ways. 
um, and in you know, affected people's minds and in, 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 in a good way because I was trying to do it in a good way. At least I meant I meant to. I mean, I've I've definitely affected people in a bad way because I've said stupid <laughs> things. Uh, but uh, it, you know, I've I've taken thank, I've, or, or thank, I've opened thank up God doors. I haven't done that. I've opened up doors to people make for people to make foolish mistakes. Um, and, or and so you know your your words get used against you, but um, I think more for our purposes, like for the order, it's like uh, you know how, how do you do this? Create powerful symbols and powerful ideas that are positive that encapsulate the ideas that you want in the way that like I started talking about runes, and as we were talking about this, I realized that like well this is one because I made this up. This isn't ancient. Like <laughs> this is like all of our symbols I actually made up. Uh, because a, I didn't want to be a larper, and you can't be a larper if you make up your own shit. Ha <laughs> 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 ha! I got you. <laughs> you know, excellent. Yes, you know it's true. <laughs> but uh, now you're just doing something intentional. Um, you're not trying to be someone else. I mean, obviously, we use other languages and ancient languages and stuff. In, 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 you're, you're wearing this this Tayshola shirt with the Rita, but. Uh, like this symbol uh, that symbolizes father. I mean, I, I created that with intent, like yeah. to capture an idea, you know, like, well, let's use this to combine a whole bunch of symbols, but it's really, you know, father, I in the sky, all, all the things that have to do with the father archetype. And the symbol that I, I probably need to make into one of these is the uh, striker symbol. Cause it's a fucking good symbol. Yeah. And, uh, and, that we already have guys that are like keyed in on that. That that's the point where that becomes in the way that runes were for me at one point. That is the symbol of the striker, this bigger idea of a warrior. And so I, I think there's a lot of more room to do that. And you've seen it done actually in subcultures. I always like to refer to um, there. There's a, a subculture called the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. And I've seen this. It's it's amazing. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a kind of a leftist mushroom cult, um, but but it, I mean, it's it's a psychedelic art cult, right? Uh, the Terrence uh, McKenna crowd, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's a very specific artist that started it, and now now there are many, many, many artists. I in, in a way, I kind of like. It's like, could we get even halfway there to like what they've done? I mean, because they've created a whole language of symbols. Mm-hmm. that describe different things and that's becomes very arcane very quickly uh but they have a whole language of symbols that they use and a whole like symbols in terms of like you know hieroglyphics or runic kind of thing there's an alpha there's some kind of alphabet that's there but there's also like uh, you know step further like a whole language of symbols that obviously they've taken from history in the way that i've taken and, and other people do and you know put their own specific meaning on it and so, you know, these people, I mean, I, I don't know that much about the culture. I just follow the art sometimes. And if you look yeah. up the Apple of Sacred Mirrors, you'll see it. The art is really high level, really well done. And they've gotten to the point where they've actually, they have like a whole campus of buildings that, you know, like that you can go into. They have like temples like that they've created all with their own vision. That, Interesting. And then you have all these people that have... Um, had the extra effect of psychedelics on this because you have these people presumably a lot of them are taking drugs and then focusing on these new things 
And then, I mean, how deep does that get into your psyche then uh, when, when it becomes part of your psychedelic experience rather yeah. than going to nothing or seeing like the stupid green animals or whatever, uh, you know, like that's, you're like a, projecting this magic into their, into their heads. Like a hypodermic needle straight to the amygdala. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's fascinating to me and that's, it's fairly harmless what they're doing as far as i know i mean they, it's not like a charles manson level cult where they're like <laughs> like like or maybe it is maybe i maybe i'm naive in it someday they're going to snap the fingers and or say the say the magical code in the right way and all these people are going to go out and kill people but uh probably not uh that doesn't seem like that's their vibe at all um and so you have all these people that have just connected with this stuff in this really really deep and interesting way yeah it seems and, like the the peak of their their utopia is like like woodland agriculture and bonfires at night like yeah, yeah but i mean like I, I think i put something in our group the other day that they were doing they had taken a whole building and put projections of their rotating symbols and like all kinds of like art on top of it in a fast like project i mean that was yeah. it was like it's like a tool concert hi <laughs> yeah very much like that I mean, i'm sure those people probably have have uh gone there or something you know uh yeah. it's uh and, and there there are a lot of things like that in the world mm -hmm. uh, i mean all, uh, if you look at all kinds of subcultures and the symbols that they adopt and so forth and these things that take on meaning and that are created it, 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 god now i can get a really weird uh, tangent with it but i mean even like you know the uh in the way that fashion and rebellion and and those things connected like uh Look at the look at how long the Mohawk has lasted. Yeah, you know, like that became yeah. you know, it's like you have this thing that uh, you know obviously was you know associated with American like Apache even, or whatever yeah. or Mohawk Indians. Actually, that would be the group, and then uh, and then you had it used in World War II, uh, and then like those, taxi driver, right? Yeah, and then taxi driver, and then I'm not sure if that came before or after the punk movement technically started. Hmm. Which uh, weird tangent? I mean, that was created yeah. in England by fucking uh, in a shop called Sex, uh, by by Vivian Westwood and <laughs> the fashion designer Vivian Westwood and somebody else. That look of the safety pins and all that shit that they wear in kind of S and M clothes and all they all they put it together, and then uh, that became punk rock look that kids still wear at the mall today when they want to make their parents mad. Like it's like the international outfit of making your parents mad. Like, like it, it, but it came yeah. from like you know, like like people on the dole and like lower class English discontent. Yeah. In the same way that, uh, um, I mean, whenever I want to fucking bag on uh, uh, black metal, uh, I'm like, that just seems like it's just angry like Norwegian kids, uh, you know, like <laughs> angry who hate their parents who went to church, you know, is uh, you know they put on the face paint, the corpse paint, it becomes a whole like thing. Yeah, but it, but it works, and it yes. it's and the thing is, it it takes a degree of vision, not just creativity, but like vision to be able to to know what will work, and oftentimes experience too. And I think sure. like creating magic might be beyond the reach of a lot of people but that doesn't mean you can't a at least learn to identify it and b also support the good stuff um yeah. like whether that's your work or um i mean uh my most recent book you know the hero and the man is mm -hmm. like i didn't i didn't do this cover art i i commissioned it and that's actually the the original inking right here that i ordered from 
um, Finland, I want to say, um, yeah. where the guy inked it and um, and commissioned it because it, it, it this is like creating new art for and the the purpose of the book is not is not to change people in a like to persuade them to take on a certain mindset because what I'm interested in is literally what did Homer actually believe and it's like a, in theory a falsifiable um, hypothesis that that could be wrong if someone presents a better argument and I'm curious what other people have to say about it but the magic I might be trying to do is to get more people to think about Homer and to mm -hmm. engage with Homer and um, you know you can engage in a conversation for the for the pleasure of it that still draws people's because half of persuasion is just what you draw people's attention to absolutely and um i think what better story to draw people's attention to than homer some a lot of people will say the bible but i would i would uh, dis <laughs> disagree there's there's room for disagreement there yeah, um yeah. And uh, the Bible also has a few good books in it. I would I would say Job and Ecclesiastes are cool. Some of the other ones not so much. But uh, but Homer is special, and um, I, I feel like as a as a positive act of magical creation, or or not creation in this case, but um, uh, protection and and sustainment, um, drawing people's eyes and minds back to Homer. Um, if that could be considered a magical act um, and, and to, to get people to appreciate something closer to stage magic, there's this, this, the awe inspiring wonder of these incredible stories um, is, uh, is something that's just worthwhile in itself. And it inspires a different kind of art and a different concept of beauty than we see in the in the rebellious, <laughs> you know, juggalo face music of the of of you know just rebelling against the the mundane picket fence world of the fifties or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's that's absolutely true. You can you can do that and uh, bring people's attention to things. I mean, you you think of that, you know, then publishing is magic in a way. Like people, when people resurrect an old book that uh, everyone forgot about. Well, yeah, one of the one of the more interesting YouTube sourcers, uh, a gentleman known as Tarl Warwick, aka Sticks Hexenhammer. That's basically all he does. He just puts out little eight minute videos to keep you uh, in, keep him in your habit loop, and then publishes ancient books that he found and edited. He's put out like ninety or a hundred books. The, from like people in the 1600s that wrote about werewolves and wrote about herbs and wrote about gardening and alchemy and just all kinds of weird stuff. And he just puts it out there on Amazon public domain stuff and just, uh, just keeps putting stuff out and it's, yeah. uh, it yeah. works. Yeah. No, I have a friend who's been doing that his whole life. I actually two friends uh, and they work together sometimes, uh, um, butter Trevor and, uh, um, my first publisher, uh, uh, Kevin Slaughter. Uh, he, uh, mm. I mean, they, they are nerds for putting out ancient books on certain, on topics that they think are interesting, but no one else cares about. And they, they, they will publish, spend so much time making beautiful editions of books in, in the hopes, obviously they do get out to somebody. I mean, they, they went down a rabbit hole on egoism hmm. for years. Uh, society, uh, basically republishing all the, 
material from the movement of egoism, which I guess is like late 19th, earliest 20th, 20th century. But it's a like, whole thing. Is that related to Randy and objectivism? It, it precedes it. Okay. Uh, it precedes it as far as I know. And I don't know that much about it, but uh, I mean, uh, they, they, they wrote books about it, like sep like books of their own. They did, uh, you know, like they published all the journals that republish all the journals that somebody published. There's a whole philosophical movement. If anything, it probably, um, Max Sterner, the ego in its own. I've heard the name. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably one of their more foundational books and they've, they've printed an edition of that, I believe a translation, an original translation of that, that I think the author then, then, uh, uh, uh disavowed. And so they had to pull it off the market. Like they, they, uh, they, they do all kinds of stuff like that, but they, but, but, you know, to, to take the point, yeah. Bringing something into light, uh, that has been sleeping for a long time, um, which is Homer in many cases for people, uh, you know, if you, if you bring something that they haven't thought about or whatever, and uh, we're doing it with the with the order and Rigveda, yeah, no talks about Rigveda. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, it, yeah. and all of a sudden people are discovering this different thing uh, that has has a lot of cool aspects if you dig if you dig deep enough and dig yeah. hard. Which uh, reminds me, because you were mentioning I, a few months back, you know, I wish someone did like a, a Neil Gaiman style retelling of the Rigveda. Neil Gaiman's doing phenomenal work like bringing eyes back on the ancient Nordic stuff. And um, there are all kinds of people who do this, not so much with the Iliad, you know, Troy not included, but, um, but with the Odyssey um, mm. there, are, you know, there's everyone knows, Oh brother, where art thou? Um, but also there's a, a, a book that's very popular in like middle school, high school students called Watership Down, which is about a bunch of rabbits. Um, that traumatized me as a kid. It's rough. It's rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 going on because like, oh, it's the Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> They're like getting gassed at one point. They're like getting yeah. killed, picked off by crows or eagles or something. I don't, I don't It's been like 25 years or whatever. But like, gnarly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just the Odyssey. It's yeah. just the Odyssey. And um, really? there's all that. kinds of, there all kinds of weird ways that people, um, you know, can, can keep these stories alive and even add to them um, and develop them further. One might say uh, Shakespeare sort of did that. Um, the story of the story of Hamlet, his, his like masterpiece uh, is so much, it's not the Odyssey, but it borrows from the Odyssey so much that it even includes a character named Laertes, uh, Odysseus's father. Um, and it is the story of a, of a King taking his rightful place at home, which then inspired the Lion King, um, which is also Odysseus, the king coming home to Ithaca and uh, cleaning out the suitors, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is funny, the, the iterations, and it, it just becomes fun. Like half the pleasure of, of learning the, the magic in keeping this stuff alive. And there's a fantastic book called How to Read Literature Like a Professor that teaches you to to spot and name the the symbolic and thematic tools that authors use to convey deeper ideas and you get to see like you and i both nerd out on etymologies and it's like what was the origin of this word and we go right. back for the to like the proto-european roots and then if clinton's around the proto-uralic roots and, <laughs> and yeah. stuff but like you, you can see that with stories too which is it just it, it adds an, a new layer of depth of appreciation and it just makes the world a richer and, and more fun place. 
um, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why, you know, classical education was so better in a lot of ways. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I, I remember reading certain things when I was younger that like, there's no way an American uh, you know, who went through a public school system would even know how to understand uh, because they're, they're, the references are lost because we haven't read the source material to recognize the references. I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. the, the, the most comical example was me uh, probably as a sophomore in high school um, trying to read Ezra Pound. I was super, I did like a book, a whole like report for master's English, like honors English or whatever on Ezra Pound. That's tough. And, and you can't, <laughs> which doesn't matter about me as a kid actually, but uh, you, you, uh, you can't, really get Ezra Pound and I'm sure I still can't uh, because he writes in like five different languages and like you know like the references are so deep across all the great literature yeah I, you know, I, I I've only read that I would certainly when I was like 12 you know 14 or whatever but uh still I mean there's so much and, and like another one that I read when I was a kid that was a little beyond me even though I got a lot out of it was uh Camille Paglia's the sexual persona Mm. Uh, because uh, you know, it's like, who the fuck's read uh, the Fairy Queen? <laughs> you know, like there's that's this Goethe, right? Huh? That's what? Goethe, right? No, no, Edmund Spencer, I believe. Oh, it's God. an English, it's an English poem, <laughs> uh, but it's like this English epic piece of work of literature that you you know takes yeah. probably a lot of study to actually get, and you know she has whole chapters on it and how it relates to other things, you know. Yeah, uh, and then years back, Shakespeare, and then somewhere else because he's an art history. Yeah. Teacher, you know, a few years back, I tried to read uh, Freud, yeah. and Freud writes half the time in German. It's like like ninety percent English and like two percent Latin and eight percent just German. <laughs> and yeah. it, there, there's no footnotes with the translation at the bottom. It, it, he just expects you to know these precise words. And you know, when Greg Nodge writes about you know, Homer, he'll at least give you the definitions of these Greek words. But right. after a while, you, you come to know them and um, it, it, you get a, a command of English you wouldn't otherwise have. But uh, yeah, like modern education doesn't have that. But you can, but you still can learn these things. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, it makes it a lot, a lot more fun. I, I've, I've only read one poem by Ezra Pound. That's the, the usury poem. And yeah, it's like, Half of it's in like Latin or Italian or something. I don't. Yeah, try, try, <laughs> try cracking his cantos. Uh, yeah. he, he, the cantos of Ezra Pound are like, like what even is this? <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, because they're also modernist and like whatever. And like, here's here's something from Japanese no drama and something from ancient Greece and something that like, uh, you know, yeah. pretty amazing stuff. Uh, obviously, it was a little rough when I was a kid. Like, what even is this? But. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I mean, and that's one of the things that, again, is also powerful with culture that, you know, then we'll wrap up here. But uh, um, mm -hmm. what we're trying to do with the order is, is that's why we're having everybody read the same books. Yeah, everybody reads the first three books. So we all have a frame of reference, because once we have all the same reference, then we can make the jokes and do the things that you're talking about, like between the ancient literature, like in the way that all the guys know what girthy hams mean. <laughs> you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, you can connect these jokes and, and that's part of culture. Like we yeah. all have the same frame of reference now. So then we can, you know, they, they, you know, this month, everybody's going to be finished with. You know, can I, can I, can I ruin the, the girthy hams joke as an inside joke for whoever sees this? 
Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So there's a there's a funny line in the Odyssey where Odysseus is sitting at uh, at the table. And uh, a bunch of the other men at the table are looking. They're like, who's this stranger? And they're like, I don't know, but look at the look at the size of the hams on him <laughs> or something, something like that. They're basically like admiring his legs and his butt, basically. <laughs> they're like, damn, he's got a, a legs on him. Uh, so Com- was, and with, uh, which was contrasted with the bandy legged, I believe. That was what the that was what they were going back and forth. There were bandy legged people, and then uh maybe not in that scene, mm-hmm. but when they were talking about that in the order, uh, I was oh, not reading yeah. it at the time, there's, but there's, it was there, bandy legged and girthy hands. Yeah. Thersites is the evil bad guy who shows up for two paragraphs and then gets beat up by Odysseus and then doesn't say anything for the rest of the whole story. But um, yeah. yeah, Odysseus is like this. He's got this, these strong Arnold legs, yeah. uh, I guess not, not swift footed like Achilles, but uh, he can, he can keep going and he can throw a discus really far. So, yeah. Let's yeah, and, and, and you know, having those that frame of reference like that, then uh, you know, enriches our culture and enriches our ability to communicate, and we have that shared you know base. Because I mean, that's a lot of what culture is: is having kind of a shared frame of reference and shared base. And uh, that's why it's yeah. And then once you do that, then you can you know kind of geek out within that that realm, and then you know have all kinds of references and make yeah. make obscure jokes that no one understands, which I think are the base of all culture anyway. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> like, yeah. like inside jokes are kind of the base of like culture. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you can, you can have an understanding of what's going on so that people who try to subvert that frame at a, at a superficial or even at a moderately deep level, uh, won't succeed as easily. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Cool. So I think we did a good job of exploring, uh, magic here. Uh, and you know, maybe we'll do even more because it's kind of a topic that doesn't end as you, as you said, but, uh, yeah. uh, and, and I think that it's, it's, uh, phenomenally interesting, uh, more than, you know, I do so many podcasts. I was thinking about this, that, uh, you do so many podcasts over the years, having, having probably been on hundreds, uh, myself and having hosted, you know, a, a good many, um, you know, you go on and see a, a author comes on, uh, or whatever talks about the, the five things that they always talk about. And then go on move on you know and not possibly current banter about current events yeah. and then go on and then uh, you know you don't get the same kind of like dig down ideas a lot of the time yeah but uh, which is which is why when when i interviewed you going into ai art seems like the interesting thing because i think a lot of people who read the way of men and, and even fire the dark don't know that you have an art background and that yeah. like ai art and this this cutting edge of how is this going to change the the not just the art world but maybe the world at, at large and how does this thing even work is like a it, you know having repetitive conversations can, can only take you so far you know but but uh it, it's it's more fun to explore these things and um and magic is something that seems to be either you know discussed in this credulous naive crystal gazing way or in a um or, or in a skeptical, dismissive manner, and right. it is fascinating to see even mainstream people. Uh, I don't mean just Alex Jones, but also like Tim Pool, talking quite openly about demons, uh, unironically. Like I think there's something malevolent at work in the world, and I can't explain it. Um, 
and there's i think there's some hunger for for a, a more mature and serious understanding of of magic and and sorcery and i mean we're still learning too we're all you know kind of catching up on this stuff but um but it is it is an interesting world to explore and it's one that very smart people who have been influencing the world in tremendous ways take extremely seriously so um it might make sense for us too as well absolutely absolutely all right man it's been a good one and everybody absolutely. stay solar stay solar Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com.